0: Hello, my name is Richard Fern, and I'm joined today by Dr. Rob Johnson of the History Department of the University of Warwick. Rob's area of research is conflict resolution and the Middle East, and he's recently published a book called Spying for Empire, a history of the intelligence communities, activities in the Middle East between the 18th and 20th century. Recently, our TV screens and our newspapers have been filled with terrible images of the conflict in the Lebanon. How do you manage to get from the Oslo Accords to here?
1: Well, I suppose, um, first of all, I'd like to reiterate what you said about the the, the terrible nature of the conflict. And I think, quite rightly, all our media screens have been filled with images of civilians who have have died in this conflict. Um, And it's a long and uh, troubled road, in the sense, of, of how we've got to this position. I mean, the immediate sort of media interest has been how a raid, a month ago, a raid by Hezbollah, Um, against uh, an Israeli outpost on the disputed border between Israel and uh, the Lebanon um, was responded to very heavily by an Israeli airstrike and by an Israeli sort of um, ground operation. Um, Hezbollah then responded with uh, missile strikes against uh, civilian targets inside Israel and, and Israel has responded with massive retaliation of airstrikes of their own against Lebanese targets, which they claim are all sort of surgical strikes against Hezbollah. Now, the interesting thing about all that is that these are the very immediate, uh, if you like, triggers for what is actually a deep-seated conflict. Um, I mean, the real essence of this is uh, a dispute over the very creation of Israel in 1948. Uh, according to Hezbollah, as indeed many Arab countries, they believe that uh, Israel uh, occupies illegally so much territory. Um, and that uh, even the United Nations' original format of boundaries was not honoured by Israel because uh, the moment that Israel was declared in May 1948, a war broke out. Um, And the Arab-Israeli dispute um, has been characterised by war. I mean, it's not like a sort of a a border dispute we could could settle over, say, Africa or even between China and Vietnam or something like that. This is a a state born of war. This is a region which has been uh, wrecked, in a sense. Every peace plan we've ever uh, formulated has been wrecked by war. And it's been complicated still further by external power interests.
0: Give me some of the history of Hezbollah.
1: Okay. uh, well, first of all, um, they were formed in in 1982, uh, and they were an organisation that was uh, born out of, really, the the invasion by Israel of southern Lebanon. Um, And to put that in its context... um, Essentially, the the, uh, Palestinian people who had been displaced, mainly into places like Gaza, but also into smaller and smaller enclaves within Israel itself, were also pushed out to southern Lebanon. Lebanon, former Mandate Territory of France, you know, had been a colonial state and had won its independence. So we had a situation where large numbers of uh, disaffected people, um, obviously a lot of young men in refugee camps in southern Lebanon, um, formed themselves into different war bands of the PLO. The People of uh, Lebanon were, were very um, unhappy with this particular arrangement as the PLO became more and more assertive in southern Lebanon, and southern Lebanon was becoming almost the miniature Palestine. Um, some of the Lebanese formed their own militia group, uh, the Falange, uh, and um, after a great deal of tension, a civil war erupted. Uh, and that beginning of that civil war to its very, very end, we should remember about this conflict in that period, cost the lives of 70,000 people. I mean, I know today that the events are very, very tragic in Lebanon, but on a daily basis we're seeing, you know, tens and twenties of people killed. Now, they are, each of them, a tragedy. But I'm afraid in, in sort of you know, historical terms, this is a minor skirmish compared with what we've seen in the past before. And it was against that background, against the background of the PLO um, attacking uh, into Israel, raiding. Here we another example again of, of history coming around again. But that raiding... Uh, Prompted the Israelis to invade a sovereign state of Lebanon. It's completely legal, of course, but then, of course, the attacks across the border were also legal. But they invaded. Uh, And even though the Israelis um, stabilized a position north of the Latani River by besieging Beirut and, and sort of kept Lebanon in a vice like grip in order to try and pursue. Uh, the PLO to destruction, what you saw was the breakdown of order, the collapse of Lebanon, and this is what many people fear at the moment, that, that Lebanon will in fact implode again, will be wrecked with, uh, wrecked with another civil war, and the civil war involves Christian uh, militia Druze militia, Muslim groups the uh, Islamic Jihad uh, the group that of course funded by Iran as well and then Um, The emergence, because Iran wanted to try and influence this particular outcome uh, for its own favour, again, to perhaps create some support amongst the Lebanese and against the Palestinians, who, you know, they're a different kind of uh, ilk, obviously, ideologically, but that would have given them strategic depth against Iraq, who they were in conflict with at the time. Now, um, what happened was uh, Hezbollah were then set up at that point. Um, So we're into the uh, early stages of of the Israeli occupation, and Hezbollah... Uh, let's not beat about the bush. Um, uh, operated in a, you might say, guerrilla or terrorist sort of function. They, uh, they, the kind of fighting they carried out was what we now do is call uh, asymmetrical fighting, um, hit and run tactics, hitting the where they could really, really hurt them. Um, but the conflict there uh, was fortunately brought to an end, and when the uh, Israelis were eventually uh, persuaded to go for um, a peaceful settlement, and we had the Oslo Accords, and we had a Land for Peace programme, which had been mooted first in the 70s. But once we had that programme in place, then um, the Israelis uh, eventually agreed to give up. Now, the way that this um, occupation and its withdrawal has been interpreted in the Muslim world is that uh, resistance groups successfully drove the Israelis out. That is the way it's seen. Whether that's true historically, I think time will have to tell, um, because, like... The, any process of decolonisation, it's a bit of six, one one half dozen, the other. Uh, Israel made a conscious decision to withdraw as much as it made a conscious decision to invade, but there's no doubt that part of that decision was influenced by resistance. Hezbollah, therefore, believe that they're an organisation who have the ability to really hurt Israel, to, um, to force a change in Israeli policy by terrorist means, or by what they would call resistance means, um, and that, um, that they can do it again. That they have the ability to do this. Now, Israel, uh, for their part, I think, um, felt that the withdrawal was too hasty in the year 2000. Uh, that the moment they came out, because the UN weren't really very robust in terms of setting up a security zone, which is what Israel wanted, Hezbollah moved literally into the areas uh, uh, vacated instantaneously by the Israeli Defence Force. Um, they began setting up bunkers and so on. And What's really, I think, interesting about what's happened to Hezbollah in those intervening years um, is that uh, the Lebanese were beginning to get a little bit fed up, actually, with Hezbollah, um, as they did, perhaps, in in 1978-79. And largely, uh, that's because, and again, this is perhaps often forgotten at the moment, is that Hezbollah began to set up vehicle checkpoints, security zones, security checks. Yes, they set up schools. Uh, There are 12 schools run by Hezbollah, um, medical clinics, uh, there are uh, four hospitals that are run by Hezbollah. They see themselves as a social welfare-like organisation looking after the interests of Lebanese people, and there's no denying that they have tried to do that. But um, they were doing that within a sovereign state of Lebanon. Now, the the argument is, of course, by Hezbollah, well, we were participating in democracy. We had 10% of the seats uh, in uh, the Lebanese parliament, two members of the coalition cabinet, if you like. So we are uh, not a a terrorist organisation, we are a guerrilla resistance organisation. But, um, again, history has indicated to us before that just because you participate in democracy doesn't make you a democrat. Um, and the way that uh, Hezbollah have conducted some of their external politics, this ESA organisation particularly, um, is certainly illegal. Uh, and the idea that weapons can be supplied to this organisation by Iran is illegal. Uh, that's not to justify the other side. I'm not saying for a moment that Israel is doing anything legal. I mean, they've invaded a sovereign state. They have um, not waited for a UN resolution to, uh, to solve the, the problem politically. Um, they've not uh, gone in for what we might call moderate uh, military aid to the civil power kind of ways of, of policing a problem. They've made no effort, um, so far as we can see, to assist the Lebanese civilians. I mean, they've actually detonated, you know, um, bridges have been destroyed to escape, uh, prevent people from escaping. And the, um, the argument, certainly in the Muslim world at the moment, is that the, the Israelis are deliberately creating misery in Lebanon, so as to try and discredit Hezbollah, to make people feel that, well, you allow Hezbollah to exist here, this is what you get if you allow Hezbollah to exist. Now, whether that argument is right or not it is, is very difficult to tell. I mean, but what we can say is that, uh, um, looking at the opinion polls coming out of Beirut at the moment, is that um, support amongst even um, previously, uh, people who previously did not support Hezbollah, um, is increasing. I mean, it's gone from 29% in Beirut support for Hezbollah to 79% in the last few four weeks. Um, people are being driven to the arms of Hezbollah, uh, and Israel's policy, by being so determined and so aggressive, I think is probably, in the long run, going to be counterproductive. Yes, they may win a military campaign. They've got 10,000 men in southern Lebanon against, what, 6,000, 7,000 know, activists from Hezbollah. They outnumber them. They can pour more men in if they wish. They have all the hardware um, And the rocket attacks, although they're hurting Israel, are a very small hurt. I mean, they're nothing like um, the kind of damage that Israel can do to the Lebanese or to Hezbollah.
0: How does the relationship between Israel and the US affect this situation?
1: This is where we need to bring in the great power picture to all this. I mean, first of all, I'd better say I don't subscribe to this idea... um, that somehow the American foreign policy has been run by Zionists. I mean, this is something you'll find in very much in Al-Qaeda literature, of course, that, uh, that somehow, you know, the, and I, I think actually we all deeply want to believe conspiracy theories because of the kind of the way we make moral and value judgments about Israel. Uh, the point is that um, Israel's foreign policy and America's foreign policy are quite distinct, but there are areas of coincidence. And the one at the moment, which they both talk about uh, in very warm terms to each other, is a global war on terror and a war on terrorism. To give you an example, I mean, the Americans believe that Hezbollah is a terrorist organisation lock, stock and barrel. Uh, in the United Kingdom does not take that view. Um, uh, our own view is is that uh, Hezbollah is a resistance organisation. We're very much more in keeping with the Arab world on that one. Uh, but uh, the British intelligence services believe that uh, the ESO, or External Security Organisation of Hezbollah, uh, is um, rather maverick. Uh, it's directly funded, we believe, uh, by Iran. Um, and certainly Americans believe that something in the tune of 60 to $100 million goes into Hezbollah uh, annually. So whether that figure can be verified is a different matter, of course. But the point is that uh, there is a militant wing of uh, Hezbollah, which is to some extent driven along by, I mean, ideologically as opposed to just financially, ideologically by the revolutionary fervour of Iran. Uh, It's not a coincidence uh, that uh, the president of Iran has recently called on twice since in this year alone for the wiping of Israel from the map. Um, In the same... uh, 12-month period, we've also had George W. Bush reiterating the need for democratisation of uh, of the Middle East, for the crushing of terrorism around the world, for greater international cooperation. So here we have the giants of the Middle East region at the moment. Uh, United States on one side uh, with, uh, you might say, a protégé Israel, but I personally believe that it's a very much more independent body than that. And I think America struggles frankly to, to do anything like controlling it. Um, and we also have Iran, the, which has now emerged because of the demise of Iraq, as perhaps the leading power of the Middle East. And I think if we're going to understand the, not only the nature and causes of the Lebanon conflict, but also, more importantly, the solutions, then we have to understand the agendas of the United States, of Israel and Iran.
0: And in fact, wouldn't it be true to say that Iran is in some way competing with the likes of Syria mm. for some sort of um, leadership of the region?
1: Well, that's right. I mean, interestingly enough, it's been long speculated about who funds Hezbollah. Um, and it was, it's was it been alleged many, many times that actually Syria has been a fund funding body, if you like, of Hezbollah. Now, there certainly have been informal contacts as far as we can tell. Um, and there's been perhaps some exchange of ideas and, and those sorts of things, particularly during that civil war when Hezbollah came to, to uh, prominence and when they were formed. Um, I'll come back to that perhaps in a moment. But the... Uh, The important thing is that Iran certainly is the chief backer. We can can say that with with pretty much assurance. And actually, interesting enough, and one of the things that that I've been looking at at the moment is trying to find out a bit more about these uh, missile strikes that Israel finds so irksome. I mean, Israel's two concerns our security and its settlements issue. I mean, we could debate that as well, perhaps a little later. Um, But as far as the missiles issue is concerned, you know, um, missiles are, first of all, very, very expensive. Uh, Even, you know, basic Katusha rocket launchers are, you know, not cheap, and and these things need to be provided from somewhere. Um, Now, it is interesting that, um, you know, the the estimated stockpile of weapon systems that uh, that Hezbollah possesses is something in the region of 11,500 missiles. Now, we've seen rocket barrages so far of 100 to 200 on certain particularly bad days of the fighting in the last month. Um, but to sustain that level of intensity, um, all military forces require replenishment. And I think one of the interesting things that the Americans will be looking at, and the Israelis certainly, their Mossad intelligence agency, they'll be looking at um, you know the resupp- resupply, if you like, of these missiles. I mean, there will become a point, I think, where both sides will begin to run low on military resources and will be looking to replenish. And that's, in a sense, the, the opportunity for all the other powers of the world to step in and start really putting the pressure on controlling them. I mean, this is how wars have been stopped in the past, believe it or not, by you know, pressuring the supply of weapons.
0: Mossad, I'm sure, would tell us that those weapons are coming into Syria.
1: Well, um, it does beg the question, how do you get them in if they're going to come in? And, um, it, you know, if there's international rivalry between Syria and Iran... Um, One thing you have to sort of uh, lay against that, in a sense, is what are their common interests? And at the moment, there is a common interest in making sure that Israel does not become any more influential or indeed territorially dominant in southern Lebanon. That's not in their interests. Um, Syria will not wish to confront uh, Israel directly, because that would mean some direct confrontation, perhaps, with the United States as its backer. Iran, too, is far too clever to take on a direct confrontation with Israel. Um, I mean, if we if we take this a stage further, if we envelope this out just one more step, and what's really interesting about this is, uh, you know, what is Iran up to? Uh, you know, why would Iran uh, be involved in this issue at all? Well, of course, um, it's not just the rhetorical uh, statements that, that are important um, about wiping Israel from the map. Uh, as far as, you know, the reading of this might, might go, as far as we can see... Um, Iran uh, is under enormous pressure at the moment from the United States in terms of its nuclear weapons programme. The Persian Gulf is filled with American warships. Iran... Uh, sorry, Iraq, rather, is full of uh, American troops uh, and American allies as well. Of course, the Kurds are allies on the northern border. They've got uh, the Allies of America to their north uh, in the Caspian Sea, a disputed area, of course, in terms of not just territory boundary, but oil resources, vital oil resources for the next 10, 20 years. And, of course, in Afghanistan, again, we've got American troops and we've got NATO forces, and Pakistan is an ally of the United States conducting its own global war on terror against its own people of Bluchistan and, and Waziristan. So Iran is totally encircled. Now, if you look at historical examples of where powers get encircled, they begin to lash out. They're looking for what we might call strategic depth. They're looking for some way of pushing back their opponents. Um, now, this might be, you know, done in all sorts of ways. We might say a full-blown conflagration. You know, Germany, for example, 1914, lashes out with a major new uh, policy. Uh, and goes to war. Um, we also see the of extremist politics quite often in those situations. Iran uh, at the moment faces a, an internal population who are uh, predominantly young. Most people in Iran, uh, you know, almost half the population are under 30. Um, a lot of them are indifferent to politics and many of them don't remember the Iranian revolution in 1979. Um, and they have no particular interest in Khomeini. Uh, indeed, on the streets of Tehran, uh, even, uh, there are young people beginning to hold hands if they're of mixed gender. The, the people, uh, Young women are not uh, wearing the veil in the way that they were supposed to. Um, uh, so maybe they need a rhetorical, internal, mm. uh, warlike state in order to kind of win back domestic approval. I mean, they faced riots in 2002, 2003 on this one. So there's domestic scene, but there's also Iran's kind of external one. How do you how do you create strategic depth? Well, if there's going to be anything like a, a missile strike, let's say against Iranian nuclear facilities, yes, America could do it, but it could also use Israel. Now you might think that's slightly extraordinary, but uh, let's not forget that it was uh, Begin um, uh, in the late seventies who. Uh, made the uh, missile airstrike against the Iraqi uh, nuclear facilities at Azirak, near Baghdad. So, you know, we have um, a precedent here where, um, you know, the Iranians might look to disrupt Israel in order to deflect attention away from its domestic and its foreign policy problems. And what better than to, to use a, a protégé, a, a sort of state, or state within a state, if like with Hezbollah, uh, to uh, disrupt and distract Israel on its own doorstep. So maybe that's what, what we're seeing there.
0: So how do we get these two sides to sit around the table, and how do we solve this intractable problem?
1: Well, it's not going to be easy, that's for sure. Um, It's a, uh, I suppose what we have to envisage is a long-term peace process. The first step will clearly be a ceasefire, um, and that really has to be pressure laid on Israel and Hezbollah um, by some of the the big uh, hitters in this particular region. We're looking really for the United States to take a lead there, but we're also, uh, I would argue, we would need to have um, uh, Russia and China uh, playing their part in the Security Council. France would clearly want to be involved because it has an old, long, historical, colonial sort of interest, or mandate interest, rather, uh, in the Lebanon. Um, but clearly Iran. I mean, Iran must be sort of part of the process. And really what we need is, uh, after the ceasefire has been imposed, is we need a comprehensive round table meeting, uh, along the lines of perhaps the, the Dayton Accord meetings, um, where we can get um, some serious discussion going uh, with long-term milestones in place. So we're talking about ten, 10-, 15-, 20-year period, where we can say uh, to each of the protagonists, lay out your particular areas of interest. Then what we must do is begin to work on these compromises. It's been proven it can happen. In Northern Ireland, is a classic example of where you had uh, a non-state acting force, Sinn Féin IRA, if you want, uh, against the British government and an interest in you know, from Southern Ireland, from the people of Northern Ireland and many political parties, of a highly complex situation which was resolved by a long-term process and is being still worked out, you might say. I think that's the sort of thing that we need to see in this particular region. We need a, a more comprehensive um, programme which involves, uh, yes, land, but also, let's not forget, water resources, which is the cause of the, of the conflicts in 1973, for example. Um, we need to see uh, certainly a long-term plan for the disarmament of some of these organisations like the the, the Fatah Brigades, for example, and the Ansar Brigades uh, that have really fought for Hamas's cause. Uh, And Israel, of course, itself needs to I think go through now a major rethink of its two main areas of uh, uh, concern which are security uh, again quite understandably in recent events but also this issue of settlements and land. I mean Unless Israel um, moves to what we might call a two-state solution, I recognise a Palestinian state, or maybe even in, maybe I'm a dreamer, but my my great dream would be, if there was one state of um, Palestine, that it would be a joint Israeli-run Palestinian democratic body. I mean, wouldn't that be a marvellous sort of final outcome for the for the two countries of you know different political parties, maybe represent different political interests, but a sort of consociational democracy where. Um, the interests and cultures are both recognised and, and run. I mean, that would be, in a sense, a great hope for somewhere like Jerusalem, for example, maybe to be um, something like a free city, like, like Danzig was in the 1920s. Um, to have that kind of um, solution in mind, or that kind of dream in mind, I, mean, I don't think that's totally mad, hopefully. It is in the interests, of course, of extremist and militant organisations, and I'm talking on both sides here, um, to want to keep certain conflicts going, to push a little bit further forward, to get eager, out, you know, leave out another um, little concession. But in a sense, you have to ride above those people. Um, it's true that there may need to be, for certain sensibilities, suspensions of, of peace processes. There may need to be a, sort of like a, a thinking period, a cooling off time. And we saw that in Northern Ireland too, let's face it, after the, you know things like the real IRA bombings of Oma and so on. But I think it, there needs to be this sort of a, a rolling programme which everyone has signed up and everyone subscribed to. In other words, there needs to be winners on all sides from this. And everyone needs to feel that they have a stake in winning something from this process. Now, I know, you know, these might seem like pipe dreams, but I, I suppose the reason why each of these peace agreements have failed in the past is because um, people have signed up to them in the short term or with a short term objective. Uh, Unless we have a more long-term picture about this, you know, and and mapping out, routing out, as it used to be called, or roadmaps and so on, these particular solutions, we're not going to get anywhere. All we're going to have is what we've got now, which is short-term solutions, uh, more terrorist violence, that used an excuse for launching yet more counter-raids and more operations. We've seen it time and time again in Gaza. It's happened on the West Bank as well. You know, what we really need is is that kind of dialogue long-term.
0: It would seem very, very difficult, though, to pin down the social movements, which don't necessarily have a, uh, a formal political statement, to pin down these social movements into uh, a long-term solution, into a dialogue, into a round-table discussion. Um, if you are living in uh, a refugee camp somewhere in, in, in Lebanon, you want your little piece of revenge.
1: All those feelings, of course, entirely understandable and, and they're replicated on the Israeli side, you know, uh, and that's the, the greatest tragedy of all about this particular conflict is that each conflict has fueled the next one. But let's not forget, I mean, we've had um, examples of um, truth and reconciliation committees uh, just recently uh, where people who were absolutely, you know, straining the leash to get their own back were um, channeled, funneled into a framework which everybody signed up to. Where um, okay, there's been lots of controversy about it. I mean, particularly in South Africa, um, and now in West Africa as well. That you know, that perhaps those that that uh, should be punished are not punished. But you know, we have um, uh, other examples. We have uh, international tribunals that tried Slobodan Milosevic, for example, that's tried to try Saddam Hussein. I mean, that there is a uh, in a sense in which we do need for the most heinous of these crimes, we do need some kind of legal judgment to take place. But on the other hand. Um, a truth and reconciliation commission, maybe running alongside um, a land for peace program, which is real, realistic, which people have subscribed up, subscribed to, which is internationally monitored. More importantly, um, may begin to just uh, give ground. May, may you know may f- uh, force the hardliners rather to give ground, um, and it's that kind of position that I think we need to get ourselves into. I mean, w- what's also I think very tragic about the current um, solutions are being forward is that Israel um, has hinted that it may accept some kind of international body um, uh, taking up a military position if you like in southern Lebanon. Um, it might be possible I think for the UN to do it and um, you know if we have uh, some serious backing for the United Nations. What's tragic I think about the United Nations operations recently particularly in places like Four and so on is that there hasn't been the willingness to either commit the money or to commit the troops um, with blue helmets. And, and, and that's a, a really huge tragedy.
0: Dr Bob Johnson, thank you very much.